G'day and welcome to The Policy Shop, a place to think about public policy. I'm Glenn Davis and it's great to have your company for what I think will be perhaps a provocative discussion about housing policy. Of course, how you define a problem shapes the acceptable solutions. So is housing policy concerned principally about economic growth? Is it about savings and investment? Is it about affordability or some complex combination of these factors? I'm looking forward to hearing what our guests have to say. Joining us uh, from Sydney University is Dr Judy Yates, who's an honorary associate in the School of Economics. She works in housing economics, finance and taxation. She has a strong interest in housing affordability. Welcome, Judy. Thank you, Glenn. And with me in the studio is Professor John Freeban, who holds the Ritchie Chair of Economics at the University of Melbourne. He's an applied microeconomist and policy analyst with particular interest in taxation reform and environmental economics. Welcome, John. Hi. So we all have an interest in housing one way or the other, as homeowners, as tenants, as investors, or maybe someone looking for our first home. It's a perennial topic in the media, and it's something you find people talking about at parties and backyard barbecues all around the nation. With low interest rates, a growing population, and rising prosperity, there's a strong demand for housing that's not going away anytime soon. We borrow enormous amounts of money to invest in housing. Around 80% of private debt in Australia is debt on property. And a recent study suggests that one in seven Australian taxpayers is also a landlord. So today we want to get behind the political debate and ask about the role of governments in housing policy. But to set the scene, let's hear some thoughts and concerns from people on the street. The affordability and our children and their children's ability to be able to have own ownership in their time. We have looked for rental property. I think it was really difficult. I think they have so many people looking for good places that they can just pick, like, if they don't want children or they don't want something or other. And so I think it's quite difficult to actually find really good affordable rental property. It can be pretty challenging, like every house you rock up to, there's you know 50 or 60 people who are interested. I have witnessed friends trying to buy and that has been very difficult. Just in terms of finding somewhere they can afford in a place that they deem to be livable for them and having to often go a lot further out than they originally were wanting to. There's not enough public housing accommodation for people and the boarding houses people have put in are pretty awful. So it's pretty awful for people who can't afford private rental, I think. It's not exactly easy to find a house these days, and then if there's people that can afford it, they're just buying everything. It doesn't really leave houses to people that need one. So we've just heard some very familiar views from Australians about the housing issues they face. High prices, renters finding it difficult to secure somewhere to live, a perception that some people do well to the detriment of others. So Judy Yates, these are familiar concerns, but do they reflect substantial changes in the market? And what would you describe as the main issues with housing supply and affordability? Um, Yes, they are important issues. I think they've been issues that have been around for 20, 30 years. They've most probably had a bigger emphasis put on them, obviously, in the last few years. Anytime there's a, a boom in house prices, they come to the fore again. But I think some of the conflict arises between... The fact that housing serves so many roles, it provides shelter, we have to have somewhere to live, but particularly as we've had the sort of takeoff 
of in-house price inflation, most probably since deregulation of the financial sector in the mid-90s or so, housing has become a really important form of wealth accumulation. And so you've got this conflict between people wanting to get into the market to have somewhere to live, but also wanting to get into the market to grow their assets and protect their, their wealth. And Judy, is this a sort of status quo position or are there clear trends available in your view about housing affordability? Trends are definitely uh, it's getting worse. If you look at what's happening to first-home buyers, um, people are going into the market, um, there's been a dramatic decline in the proportion of younger people who are being able to get into the market, and that decline is dominated by those in the lower half of the income distribution. But some of the, not all of those are necessarily they're being excluded from. They're just choosing to rent because it's provides better access to amenities. It's closer to where they want to work. It gives them the lifestyle they want. Um, so the, as I said, there's a conflict about what housing provides and what people want with it. And that changes over their lifetimes too, of course. So John Freeburn, much political commentary about housing shortages blames regulation, zoning, high price, limited land supply and so on. Are you persuaded by such accounts? And from an economist viewpoint, what should be the role of government? Well, the housing is just one of the th- many things that we all want. We want good food. We want good education. We want good defence. Uh, we want to go to good movies. And in economics in general, we want more than we can get. And ultimately, most of us would like to live on a nice big mansion that looks out over Sydney Harbour or um, Port Phillip Bay There isn't enough to go around, so we have to make choices. And the housing market is pretty much like the food market. It's voluntary transactions between people who want to sell or build new houses and people who want to buy houses or rent houses. And so this voluntary market works pretty well. Hey, John, can I jump in here? I think there's one really critical difference between the food market and the housing market, and that is that housing is innately tied to land, and land's fixed. You can't, you can maybe expand a supply at the fringes of the city, maybe you can um, increase the supply of housing by building higher density, but essentially the amount of land we've got, particularly the land that provides you access to jobs, access to education, access to those health services, that's fixed. That's true. What's also kind of interesting is, um, as you rightly say, we want to locate close to the CBD. There is a fixed amount of land and those land prices really go up. Governments have quite an important role in extending the livability of cities. So if we were to extend public transport, electricity, water, schools and education, even consider decentralising where we work, then locating in new properties and we just take land off farming and convert it into home own, then there isn't a big restriction. So there's a major role for government to coordinate the provision of transport, electricity, good schools, hospitals and so on on the fringes of cities so that people can have good jobs and good communities even if they're away from the CBD. John, you stressed that it's a market like a food market, and Judy's come back on that, but I'm wondering if it's a market in in the other sense, that the incentives to buy and sell aren't straight economic choices made by individuals, but highly influenced by taxation and other policies, and that 
I'm wondering how much of an influence on, say, high prices is government taxation policy as opposed to supply and demand? Well, supply and demand is the basic drivers, you know, and, and much of the increase in housing prices over the last 50 or 60 years has essentially been driven by population and migration is half that increased story. We've got bigger incomes and we've decided that we want bigger and better housing. As Judy discussed, uh, loans and money is available at a much lower rate. So we can afford to borrow now much more than we could when interest rates were, say, 10 or 15%. So these sort of things have been big drivers. Taxation is clearly important, but the tax system has not really changed that much for the last 20 years. And by and large, investing in your own home is the biggest tax perk around town. There's no tax on imputed rent. There's no tax on capital gains on your own home. Compare that to putting your savings into a bank account. You're paying tax on the nominal interest every year. So we actually have a tax system that says to you and I, putting money away for retirement or wealth, build a bigger and better house. Don't put it in a bank. And surprise, surprise, that's what we do. Go even further. If you want to be means tested for the age pension, if you stick all your assets in your own home, it's not means tested. But if you put it in a bank deposit or even into a second property or shares, it's taxed. So I think I am hearing you saying that taxation policy is a significant influence on the choices we make around housing. It is, and it's both in terms of where we spend our money for current consumption, and it is in particular and where we put our savings away. Judy, what, from your take, is the role of government in the housing market, and what are the traditional policy instruments that governments use to try and influence housing? Well, in the first point, I think I'm, we're in furious agreement, John and I, on the role of tax. I think one of the things that we could mention that John said the tax system hadn't changed for you know, 20, 30 years in relation to housing. That's largely correct. But the economic system has changed. And so, for example, the fact that we had house price inflation take off from, say, you know, the mid-90s or something like that, that changed the, the value of the exemption of the owner-occupied home from capital gains tax and, of course, for investment housing as well. So even if the tax system hasn't changed, the fact that the economic system and the house prices have taken off, for the sort of factors that John was talking about from the constricted land supply, from population growth, from income growth, has reinforced the benefit of those tax systems. So what do I think the role of the government is? Um, I think the problem is that if you don't intervene in the market, what happens is that the well-located land, the land that provides the best access to services, to the views, to the amenities. I live in Sydney, so no views of the harbour, um, slightly different in Melbourne, but, but there are still areas which are deemed more accessible. And if we don't intervene, then those locations are going to be allocated to the people who can afford them most. That basically is how the market allocates most things, or people who afford them most and, and put highest preference on those characteristics. But, you know, your question, is that how we want our, is that the best way for our population to be divided? You know, look at the impact that housing might have on, for example, the labour market. If we have all our high-paid, high-earning earners 
centrally say located that's an exaggeration but and all the the cleaners and all the lower paid people being pushed to the fringe then that actually has an impact on productivity because businesses can't get the kind of low paid low skilled workers to come in because they can't afford to get there so that i think the role of government is to change in some ways the way the the market allocates housing yes let it run, but you need to actually intervene and provide, for example, we used to do it with public housing, but we need to have some form of housing that we can target it to those who aren't able to afford to live in the high-cost areas but basically need to do so for a whole range of reasons. And Judy, clearly in Australia we have a federal government setting taxation policy but a state government with significant responsibilities around zoning and, and other variables that matter for housing outcomes How should we think about the role of these two levels of government and perhaps the third local government as well? And what are the consequences when thinking about housing provision and affordability? Well, the first thing I think is we have to make sure they're talking to each other because at the moment what I see is the feds look to the states and say it's all the state's problem because they're not releasing enough land or putting the right zoning on it or whatever excuse they want to use or they haven't, they, they don't change stamp taxes, they've got stamp duties and so on. And the states will say, well, it's all the feds' fault because they've got too much immigration, because they deregulated the financial system, because they've got these tax policies in place. So they actually have the scope for each of them to flick the responsibility to the other. So first step, they have to talk to each other and they have to work out a coordinated housing policy, which they each agree with, preferably a long-term vision for this, because as governments change, it's too easy for one to do short-term fixes rather than long-term views. For the states, I think they need to work on things like possibly inclusionary zoning to work out that you need to have a certain proportion of your dwelling stock affordable for what you may say key workers or low income or low skilled households. For the Commonwealth, I think they need to recognise that they can contribute by, for example, encouraging investment in that kind of housing, for example, by providing, or let's just take a single example, guarantees on loans for super funds to come in there and and finance private investment in affordable housing. Um, The feds need to look at the implication of their migration policies because you can increase your intake, but if you don't actually work out where it's going to go and whether there are dwellings available for it, and so on. I mean, you can just go on forever. Indeed. This is The Policy Shop, coming to you from the University of Melbourne. I'm Glenn Davis, and my guests, Judy Yates from the University of Sydney and John Freeban from the University of Melbourne. So much of the housing debate right now is about taxation policy, and particularly negative gearing. Politicians certainly like to talk about it. 93% of existing negative gearing goes into existing houses. That is a 93% failure rate if your objective is new housing construction. Negative gearing distorts our property market and it really privileges investors and prices first home buyers out of the market. Across the income spectrum, different Australians engage with negative gearing at different levels of activity. Now, there's no great shock about that, Mr Speaker. That was Federal Treasurer Scott Morrison, and we also heard Green Senator Scott Ludlam, and first up, Shadow Federal Treasurer Chris Bowen. Negative gearing was introduced in 1988 to stimulate new housing construction. In 2012, it accounted for nearly $14 billion a year in tax foregone, an annual figure similar to the capital gains discount. 
It's so popular, some financial institutions host calculators on their websites so potential investors can estimate their tax savings when borrowing. John, can you briefly outline the suite of taxation policies that influence housing policy and where does negative gearing fit into this broader picture? Yes, so if you were own an occupied home, you uh, earn, uh, say, $100 of wages, you pay some income tax on it, and the rest you can invest in your house, and there's no tax on the return from that house. So there's no tax on imputed rent, there's no tax on the capital gains. If you were to put your money in a bank deposit, again, your $100 of wages, you'd have tax taken out of that, You'd then put the rest into the bank account and each year the 4 or 5% interest on that uh, bank deposit would be taxed. So a bank deposit is taxed very much more heavily than if you put your savings into your own home. Now if you decided to buy a second property, a rental property, again you would have your $100 of uh, labour income, you'd have your personal tax taken out and then you can invest it in a second property and get a loan in it. You would pay tax on the rent you got on that uh, property, but you would be able to deduct the interest on the debt, what you'd spent on rates and on repairs and maintenance. And if that sum was negative, that's what's called negative gearing, you could use that as a deduction against your labour income. And then way down the track, when you sell your rental property, you would pay capital gains tax at half the rate. So the tax treatment of rental property is somewhere between the concessions on your own home and the much higher tax rate on putting it in a bank deposit. And what we really need to do is to level the playing field across those three types of savings. And that's the big challenge in tax reform. It's not to look at negative gearing in isolation. It's to get the whole playing field much more level. So what are the consequences of negative gearing providing incentives to go into housing as opposed to investing in other areas? What are the economic macro consequences for Australia? Well, the first incentive in this tax treatment is to build a bigger and better own home and spend it on renovations. And so nearly half of what the building construction industry does is on renovations and making bigger McMansions. Now, if you're sick of making your own home bigger and better and you have a choice of buying some shares or putting it in a bank deposit or putting it into a second property, then a second property starts to look okay. So that means there's an increase in demand for property. There's lots of people now with rental property. Somebody's got to rent it. So if there's an increase in supply of rental property, then the price is going to come down a little bit. So some of that tax burden is actually passed on to renters. It's not at all absorbed by the person who bought the property. So why do we see such shortages of rental properties and such concerns amongst renters about access to property? Well, I think that's the general issue. There's a shortage of strawberries and peaches out of season. You know, not everybody's eating the best food or living in the best house or has the best education. 
Now, I'm kind of worried that government says it has to subsidise housing to look after poverty. What it needs to do is improve people's income so that they can make a choice on whether they want to buy food or clothing or housing. So, yes, we do have a poverty problem at the bottom, but I would suggest it would be much better to improve our social security system than to say I'm going to subsidise housing but not clothing or not food. Judy, your take on this? Yeah, I'm going to say this is where we differ. Um, two things, I think. One, in terms of the responses, John gave his arguments entirely in terms of what economists have called an efficiency argument. We want to make sure that you get the best bang for your buck in the sense of where you invest. And that makes a lot of sense. I totally agree with all the arguments he put forward. One thing I think that didn't mention quite enough is that one of the incentives that investors in housing and to a certain lesser extent, most probably homeowners have, is the expectation of capital gains. So that, that I think, is what's largely driving them, and that's what's holding down rents. I suspect the negative gearing component of it is relatively unimportant, although it's been almost impossible to tell because it's um, you know, housing markets are pretty complicated things, and if you can tell what house prices are going to do next year, it's probably a better way than, uh, well, say, you'd make a lot of money out of it, wouldn't you? But you know, in a sense, if you look at the way we measure things, we sort of say one dwelling equals one household, say one occupied dwelling equals one household. So in some sense, we haven't got any shortage at all. What we've got a shortage of is a shortage of affordable dwellings. And this is where I think the, the allocation arguments or the efficiency arguments are valid, is that what happens, yes, we are encouraged to buy bigger houses. There's no product, there's very, let's say, very little productivity improvement about having someone putting a, a media room in their house, making it bigger, putting an extra bedroom on they don't need. But what it also does is having, um, it encourages people to pay more for land. And that's, I can't see any productivity improvement that's associated with someone paying more for land just because they can afford to do so and they want to get access to that particular property because they want it more than the next person wants it. So I think that the biggest arguments about, well, you started off on negative gearing, but all those tax distortions are partly the efficiency arguments yep. because it's not, you know, I don't see it's productive investment. There are much better ways to go. But it's mainly the equity arguments. When you look at who can actually get access to housing. It's those who have got the highest incomes and the highest wealth can get access to owner-occupied property. And once they've got access to owner-occupied property, then those same owners can turn around and become investors. It's easier for them to borrow than it is for first-time buyers because they've already got equity that can act as collateral in the form of owner-occupied housing. They've, on the whole, got higher incomes than the would-be first-time buyers. The banks are much happier to, or they have been until um, APRA and the Reserve Bank started putting some restriction on to try and slow them down a little bit, much happier to lend to high-income, high-wealth households. So we've got a distortion in our financial system that says those at the bottom can't get access to finance as readily as those in the top half of the income distribution, top half of the wealth distribution. And that is creating an inequity that I think is the far more important in the, the housing taxation and negative gearing debate than all the ones that have been discussed so far. So let's pursue this question of poverty, which you've both touched on, uh, clearly very, very important as you think about housing and its consequences. So social housing, housing financed by government and directed toward those most in need, accounted for about 12% of new dwellings in the 1980s and about 2% today, so a very big shift. Given the expense of housing in Australia, 
and clearly there are people who are struggling to either rent or enter the market, where does social housing fit into the bigger picture? There's a study from two of your colleagues at the University of Sydney, Judy, um, Nicole Gurren and Peter Phipps, and it argued that we may face a shortfall in Australia of somewhere around half a million affordable houses. So what are the current policies about social housing and do they work? Well, if you go right back to the sort of immediate post-war period when we started growing significantly our social housing stock, it was designed for low-income workers. And essentially we had a financing system that thought the low-paid workers could afford to get into housing and they paid the full costs of it. Then over time what's happened is it hasn't been as adequately funded Therefore, it hasn't been maintained. Therefore, it, oh, a whole lot of reasons what's gone on. We've cut down our supply. It's now become welfare housing. It's targeted to multiple needs households who, most of whom aren't in the workforce, um, many of whom have additional needs. And there's a conflict of whether housing or other sort of forms of social service have to cover those needs. And so we don't have that safety net for the low income worker anymore that we used to have. John, what are the barriers to more affordable social housing? It's really the availability of land and um, associated services. But also state governments have a wonderful, relatively simple tax reform. At the moment we have conveyance duty that says whenever you buy and sell a house, you've got to pay the government a big extra charge. And so what that means is we're not really utilising our housing stock very effectively. You know, over our life cycle, we get married, we get divorced, we have kids, we lose kids, we change jobs and location. And many times that really says we ought to change our house, scale up, scale down. But because of this conveyance duty, we say, it's too damn hard. I don't do it. A rather simple solution, which has really been now adopted by the Australian Capital Territory, is to replace that infrequent transaction tax, stamp duty, with a regular land tax collected every year, regardless of how you use it. That can have very minimal redistribution effects in terms of winners and losers, but it will get us shifting around our available housing stock much more effectively. As I change jobs, as my family structure changes, I upskill or down or whatever, that can be done relatively easy in a roughly revenue-neutral way. Australian Capital Territory is showing us how to do it, and even South Australia has started. It's really more than time for the big states to get their act together. So why are they not doing it? What are the incentives for the states not to go to a lower transaction costs and more flexible housing markets? It's a challenge of a few special outliers. So we will hear the gripe from somebody who was asset rich, sitting on a $2 million house and income poor. And they, of course, sit there all the way along. They're not paying stamp duty and they're not paying land tax. This change would say, oh, now you'll have to pay some land tax. Now, the answer to that is, well, you can use reverse mortgages. But if the market won't do that, well, let government do that by default. We'll also get sort of interesting transition issues. I just bought a house last year. I paid stamp duty. Are you telling me I've got to pay land tax on it as well? Well, you've got to have a transition arrangement. 
And that's what the ACT are doing. It's taking them about 20 years to make this happen. It's not the only way to do it, but it's the way to do it. And what it takes is a very articulate politician to argue, here's a problem that we can solve. Here are some solutions. And I'm willing to talk about it all day and all night. And every little grizzler that's up there that talks to Tracy on TV, I find a way to counter that argument. That's the challenge that we've got. And 20 years is quite a transition. Judy, when you look internationally, uh, what lessons for us globally around ensuring that Australians can find good housing and can afford it? Well, unfortunately, there's an awful lot of lessons that we shouldn't be following. And it seems to me that the countries that have relied the most on the private market, whether it's provide owner-occupied housing or whether it's provide private rental housing, are the markets that have had the biggest affordability problems and the biggest cyclical responses to um, various trends and therefore the most instability in their housing markets. The countries that have actually provided the most stable outcomes for at least for people have been the countries that have had a, a much larger affordable rental market or a, it's not even a social rental market because if you look at something like Germany, it's largely provided by the private sector but it's got elements of control and there's a much bigger focus on renting rather than on owning. Right. I think we need to develop an affordable rental market, ideally funded not by mums and dads who are going to I think, go in and out of the market depending on what's happening to cycles in the market and so therefore not provide the kind of security and stability that people want. But we need an institutional investment in affordable rental housing. And there's a whole lot of factors that we can learn from overseas markets. We've got The UK has got a housing finance corporation that raises funds from the superannuation funds from the banks that then on lends to... Um, social housing providers. Um, you've got countries like um, some of the European countries that have particular instruments, supply bonds that I think um, Scott Ludlam has talked about at some stage, to actually raise those funds. You've got governments who provide guarantees behind them. It doesn't cost them very much at all. They have, invariably have never been called upon. Um, there are lots of lots of ways that government can get behind relatively cost effective to improve the outcomes compared with what we've already got at the moment. Um, the danger is if we're going down the mark, the way we're going at the moment is that we're going to end up with a, an economy that the top half of the population owns all the property. They live in some of it and they rent the other rest of it out to those who can't afford to get into it. That's an extreme, but I think that that's the kind of outcome if we keep on going the way we're going. Judy, you've pointed to the important question of inequality and in a country uh, that has no estate tax, that accumulation of wealth, of course, has passed from one generation to the next. How significant is inequality in the housing market and what does it tell us about broader inequality in our society? Um, I think it's becoming more significant. Housing used to be regarded as an equaliser in terms of wealth inequality particularly, but in the last few decades what's been happening is that the increases in capital gains have been going to those who already have wealth and so you're actually getting increasing inequality and housing prices have contributed quite significantly to that. And John, is inequality a significant factor here or is it a secondary question? No, it's a very important factor and um, over the last couple of decades income inequality has got worse but wealth inequality has got even much more unequal 
And as uh, has just been discussed, a land tax is really a very neat way to do it. If you look at the most efficient way to collect revenue, a land tax beats GST, beats income tax, hand over fist for efficiency. In terms of equity, again, it would hit the existing landowners who have had arguably a windfall gain over the last three decades. So if we were to push up land tax, get rid of stamp duty in part of it, but get a net increase in land tax, it would cause a one-off fall in the price of property. Those people who are living in houses now will cry, I'm poorer. My answer is, you're living in the same house that's giving you the same accommodation, the same access to restaurants, etc. Stop whinging. Now there's it brought a... down the price for your kids and other kids. John, when you think about household debt as a consequence of housing, is it significant? Does it have policy implications? Should we be worried? It's certainly been growing. And in a sense, the answer depends on where you think housing prices are going to go. If housing prices are going to continue to rise or not fall, then it's not essentially a problem people will be able to pay the loan off in due course. But if you get a um, flattening or a drop in house prices, which is really an important part of the global financial crisis in North America and Europe, where suddenly people have a negative equity in in their home, uh, they have to cash in their loans, they have to leave their homes, this starts off a, a vicious cycle that essentially runs you into a recession. Uh, It happened in Australia in the 1930s. Not the whole story of the Great Depression, but an important part of it. Now, the chances, I think, of that happening in Australia in the immediate future are not very high. We're still expecting continuing population growth. There's still a lag in supply catching up. And I don't think interest rates are going to go up any time soon. You know, if anything, we're more likely to follow North America and Europe, where the current low rates get even lower. And as interest rates go lower, as they have over the last decade and a half, a lot of that gets pumped into housing because I want to put my savings somewhere, the bank interest rates come down, the return on shares have come down, housing looks okay. So I start shifting my portfolio. So it's a non-zero risk, but I think it's very low. I think there's another important point to add to that, and that is you have to look at who owns the debt. And it goes back to the point I was making about earlier about who owns the houses. Basically, in Australia, most of that housing debt is owned by relatively high income and relatively high wealth households. I don't want to sound like an apologist for the Reserve Bank. This is the argument they've been putting forward, and they've got lots of data to back that up. In America, this is in the um, outcome of the global financial crisis, who owned the debt were the marginal home buyers who'd been pushed into home ownership most probably inappropriately by institutions who didn't take the risks into account of the people they were lending to. We haven't had that in Australia. On the whole, we've got relatively sensible banks, although I don't want to sound an apologist for the banks. But they're well-regulated banks. 
So I agree with John. I think the chance of any crash in Australia is relatively low. We might get a flattening of house prices as things slow down. We always get flattenings of house prices. We get cycles. But, you know, we seem to be absolutely paranoid about having house price growth slowing down. And I think this comes back to the question about the political problem of trying to have housing policies. There are just too many vested interests or the existing owner-occupiers who are still the majority of the market don't want their house prices to go down. They don't seem to have the ability to look forward to the future and say, where will their children live or what will their children do? They'll most probably say, oh, I've got to build up my wealth so I can pass it over to them so I can help them into housing, which again comes back to an equity problem. Those who've got houses will be able to help their kids and those who don't won't. You're so right, Judy, to point to the complexity of these discussions and the challenges that all governments, state and federal, face around housing and the intense sensitivity of the electorate uh, to any perceived shifts that might disadvantage people. It seems to me, as we move to close, there are two interesting thoughts coming out of this discussion. The first is that we talk about a housing market, and like other markets, as John has argued, it's affected by interest rates and population growth and demand and supply. But I think today's discussions also made very clear the housing market is also profoundly shaped by government policies that range from taxation incentives to supply of land. And so it isn't just a market that operates by itself, it's a market shaped by public policies. And that leads me to the second observation that since these interventions are political choices, they are open to public debate and indeed to change. There's nothing inevitable about current housing policy and scope, therefore, for research and debate and advocacy. The challenge, as always, is to define the policy. What's the primary purpose of housing policy and what outcomes should it serve? So we're left with lots to ponder. A big thanks to our guests today, Dr Judy Yates from the University of Sydney and Professor John Fairbairn from the University of Melbourne. Thanks, Glenn. Thank you. And thank you for being part of The Policy Shop I'm Glenn Davis. Till next time. The Policy Shop is produced by Owen Hasey and Heather Jarvis, with audio engineering by Gavin Neighbour, research by Ali MacDonald, and production assistance this episode by Gillian Area. You can find this podcast and read more on this topic at pursuit.unimelb.edu.au. And remember to subscribe to The Policy Shop on iTunes. Copyright University of Melbourne 2016.